0: The Truth In My Days podcast, where we defend the word of God against the challenges of men.
1: Hello all. Today we have Sonia interviewing John about the last 12 verses of Mark chapter 16. Liberal scholars claim that this is an inauthentic passage, but is this true? Have a listen and find out. We are continuing from the previous episode. We hope you enjoy.
2: Also, 12 verses, it doesn't seem to be a very big sample size anyway.
1: Exactly. Exactly. And here's one of the big problems with Bible scholars and textual critics. They have no idea of statistical analysis. It's not part of their training. And unfortunately, the mathematics does matter. It does have to come into consideration. Humans use language with all kinds of different vocabulary, different styles, depending on the purposes. The stories I made up to tell you girls when, when you were kids is not the same as the vocabulary style you use in a sermon, which is not the same as the vocabulary style that I would use in one of my articles for the website. And so here's the thing. Because of the variability, it takes a huge sample before you can draw any kind of conclusion about authenticity. G. Adni Yule, who was one of the, the greatest, perhaps the greatest statistician, mathematician, in these areas in the 20th century, wrote a book on this. And he concluded that it would take a, sa- a minimum sample of 10,000 words for you to try to establish any kind of claims about authorship on the basis of style of vocabulary. And you know, the last 12 verses of Mark are very, very much less than 10,000 words. But we can illustrate how, how bogus this kind of argument is. Let's take some other 12 verse units or you know, 9, 10 verse units from Mark look at uh, mark 1 2 to 11, Mark 942 to50, Mark 12 1 to 11, Mark 13 14 to 23, Mark 14 1 to 9, mark 1542 to165, and then our mark 16 9 to 20. Now the skeptics will tell you that there's 17 non-markin words in those 12 verses that prove it's not. Authentic. really mark 1 2 to 11 is it authentic nobody questions it it has 17 so-called non-marking words where's that on a parent mark 9 42 to 50 does anybody question it no it has 17 non-marking words our passage from chapter 12 has 19 non-marking words our passage from chapter 13 has 15 our passage from chapter 14 has 20 non-marking words so does the presence of 17 so-called non-marking words in 16, 9 to 20, does that prove anything? No. No, obviously not. This characteristic word "euthus" <laughs> it's distinctively marking. and it should be there if this were authentic, right? We go through our passages, chapter 1, "euthus" appears once. Our passage from chapter 9, it doesn't appear at all. Our passage from chapter 12 doesn't appear at all. Our passage from chapter 13 doesn't appear at all. Our passage from chapter 14 doesn't appear at all. A passage from chapter 15 doesn't appear at all. By the liberals' reasoning, all of these passages should be considered inauthentic, and none of them is. Well,
2: unless there's the combo. What about pollen?
1: Well, we'll look, okay, what about pollen? <laughs> Same thing. Look through our passages. One, two, three, four, five, six other passages besides Mark 16. In the six passages, it appears once in our passage from chapter 12. It doesn't appear in chapter 1 passage, our chapter 9 passage, or chapter 13 passage, or chapter 14 passage. In our past chapter 15 passage. The historic present. What's well, used twice in 1542 to 165. It's not used in any other of the passages. So we're left with chi and de. That's the only one left. And that's that's obviously not enough to to, to base any kind of conclusion on. But the claim is that de is used as the main unit con- connector. Whereas Mark prefers chi. So you should have more chi's than de. Well in Mark 169 to 20. You have nine or ten kai's, five or six deaths. So you do have more kai's. So here's the thing. People will make these claims. And even people seminary will, will sit in class. They will hear these claims. They will not bother to check for themselves. They will hear the claims and say, oh, yeah, it's not authentic. And they will pass it on. Not one of them bothers to do the research. Not one of them bothers to find out how many words you'd actually need in a passage to make judgments about authenticity. Not one of them sits down. And bothers to count. Well, how many times do how many unique words are there in other twelve-unit passages, twelve verse passages? How many times does Euthas appear in those? How many times does Palin appear in those? How many times does historic... they don't bother to check. They simply hear the claims that liberals have put together, and they accept it without question. And that's that's a big problem. Then they will try other claims. One writes this: the connection between verse eight and verses 9 to 20 is so awkward that it is difficult to believe that the evangelists intended the section to be a continuation of the gospel. Thus, the subject of verse 8 is the women, whereas Jesus is the presumed subject in verse 9. In verse 9, Mary Magdalene is identified, even though she had been mentioned only a few lines before, 1547 and 161. The other women of verses 1 to 8 are now forgotten. The use of anastasde and the position of proton are appropriate at the beginning of a comprehensive narrative but they're ill-suited in the continuation of verses one day now you, Sanya, you're a a Greek scholar what do you think of these arguments?
2: well, the first thing that comes to mind is if uh, the last 12 verses are supposed to be a fake that's inserted later, you'd think that whoever inserted them would purposely not try to make it awkward
1: that's the first thing that struck me as well You would think that if the connection is awkward, as they claim, that would speak against this being inauthentic because you would think somebody making up an ending, trying to slide it in, looking as if it's authentic ending would be extra careful to make it smooth. Right? So good. You picked up on that right away. What else?
2: I I don't, I'm not really aware of any problem with putting the uh, participle at the Beginning or putting proton at the beginning just because it's a continuation of verses 1 to 8. I'm not aware that that's any kind of issue. Yeah,
1: and you're right, there isn't. But but let's continue. This is from Bruce Metzger, by the way, a textual commentary on the Greek New Testament. In short, he says, All these features indicate that the section was added by someone who knew a form of Mark that ended abruptly with verse 8, and a wish to supply a more appropriate conclusion. In view of the uh, inconsinities between verses 1 to 8 and 9 to 20, it is unlikely that the long ending was composed ad hoc to fill up an obvious gap. It is more likely that the section was excerpted from another document dating perhaps from the first half of the second century. Any comments on that?
2: Okay, even if they were too lazy to make up their own last 12 verses and just uh, plagiarized from another one, you, you'd think that they'd still change around the awkward connection
1: certainly and notice again dating perhaps from the first half of the second century this is so typical in liberal biblical scholarship where they'll make a statement like that and expect you to accept it on the basis that hey i have a phd what evidence would there be that this other document was taken from the first half of the second century
2: it sounds like they just made it up they
1: just made it up they just throw that idea out and you're supposed to accept it Yeah. But you have to put it into the second century, of course, because you want the resurrection to be a legend. So, is there anything to these arguments? Well, let's look at the arguments one by one. They say the subject of verse 8 is the women, whereas Jesus is the presumed subject in verse 9. Well, yes, verse 8 is, is finishing the passage about the women in the tomb. The, the young man tells them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who is was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him, but go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you into Galilee. There you will see him as he said to you. So they went out and fled from the tomb, for they trembled and were amazed. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Now when he rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene. Well, so verse 8 is finishing this account of the women in the tomb. And verse 9 tells us that Jesus appeared first to Mary Magdalene. Well, So now we've, the topic has switched to Jesus.
2: How is that a problem?
1: Well, I don't know. But according to Metzger, the subject of verse 8 is the women, whereas Jesus is the presumed subject in verse 9. He says it's a problem. I'm not seeing the problem. The only thing I can imagine that he wants to see as a problem is that verse 9 is Jesus. It doesn't say his name, it says when he rose right on the first day. So I'll switch a subject without naming Jesus specifically, as if the context didn't somehow make it clear nobody else rose. For you. The the young man said, "Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified, he is risen." Verse nine. Now, when he rose, well, so is it clear in the context who we're talking about? Yeah, I would think so. And as you read through Mark, you will do you do find this stylistic thing that he often has conversations between two people uh, or events between two people where he just he he, he switches from one to another without specifying the name. It does happen. But here, because of the wording, Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified, he has risen. Now, when he rose, well so this is not an issue at all. The context is very clear what he's talking about. In verse 9, Mary Magdalene is identified even though she has been mentioned only a few lines before 1547 and 161. Now, this one's very strange here. Here, Metzger thinks Mary should not have been identified because she was mentioned eight verses earlier. I mean, they said her name. Eight verses early. Why are, you, why are you identifying her? Well,
2: okay, let's see. Eight verses early, it looks like they, they identified her, and they I, identified the other Mary, too, as if to distinguish them. So then, when they're mentioning her again... Sixteen well, one? We, yeah, Mary, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James. So, so then, in verse nine, if they're going to mention a Mary again, well, which one is it? Of course, they have to say, which
1: one Mary Magdalene? Yeah. So Madscare thinks Mary should not have been identified because she was mentioned eight verses earlier. Whereas in the previous point, he complains that Jesus should have been identified even though it was mentioned three verses earlier. How does that fit? I I wonder if he's even listening to himself because he points out that Mary was identified in 1547, one verse before being identified in 16. Also, again, in in 47, it's...
2: it's In the same sense as Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of somebody, Joseph. So, of course, they have to identify her to distinguish her from the other well,
1: one. Well, exactly. 1547, 61, she's, she's mentioned as a group of women. In in this verse, he's telling us who he appeared to first. What should he put in there? First appeared to her first? Uh, her? Just say her? Like, he mentioned groups of women before. Just us, saying her wouldn't. Tell who he appeared to first. He has to mention her by name here. So, what kind of argument is this? It just makes no sense. The use of Anastas de and the position of Proton first uh, are appropriate at the beginning of a comprehensive narrative, but they're ill suited in the continuation of verses 1 to 8. Now, this is complete rubbish. Okay? Proton first appears 38 times in the narrative portions of the New Testament. Is gospel books and acts 37 of those times it is not at the beginning of a comprehensive narrative. So he's telling us that oh, uh, proton, uh, ill suited to continuation, it should be at the beginning of a comprehensive narrative. Whereas 37 out of 38 times it's used in the, in the gospel is not at the beginning of a comprehensive narrative. So, where do you get the claim that that's where it should fit? Made up. Yeah, but again, who checks? They'll read this argument from, from say, oh, yeah, you know, well, that makes sense. How many of them bother to look at where Proton is used and, and see whether it's really true that they are they are appropriate at the beginning of a narrative, ill-suited in a continuation of a narrative? Because if they check, they would see. Anastasia, having and having risen, okay? It, it it should be at the beginning of a comprehensive narrative. It shouldn't be in the continuation. But I was like, doesn't it have to go at that part of the narrative where he is risen?
2: Well, I don't Which don't know. is maybe, not at maybe, the
1: beginning of the narrative. Maybe they're
2: not talking about the fact that it means they, risen. They, maybe he's referring to the aorist participle with de or something like that.
1: No, no. He's clearly talking about where it is in the narrative, not, not the, the grammatical form. What else? Okay. The other women of verses 1 to 8 are now forgotten. Well, what does it say in, in Mark 69? He appeared first to Mary Magdalene. Well, he didn't appear first to the other women. So that's why they're now, quote-unquote, forgotten. Does that make, again, any sense? And yet this is what takes in so many evangelicals.
0: Thank you, everyone, for listening today. Unfortunately, we have run out of time. But please join us for the next part tomorrow. Same time and same place. If you enjoy our content and think this is important material, the best compliment you can pay is by sharing this with your friends and family. This helps us out a lot. Also, if you enjoyed today's program, please like, comment, share, and subscribe to this podcast. We would love to hear from you. Thank you for listening to the Truth In My Days podcast with John Torse. We would love to hear from you.